Previously on Flying the Line, we examined the challenges of airline flying, the evolving industry landscape, and the perception of the airline pilot in the public psyche. This podcast is brought to you by the Airline Pilots Association. ALPA supports its pilots through a variety of resources, including Pilot Peer Support, or PPS. PPS is a support network that connects ALPA members with trained pilot peers to talk about any personal or professional problems you may be experiencing. For contact information and to learn more, visit alpa.org pps. Welcome to the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association, abridged from the book, Flying the Line, Volume 2, by George E. Hopkins. Chapter 2, The Legacy of Four Golden Decades, 1938 to 1978, Flying the Line Under Regulation. History is made up of many discrete facts, stories, and events. The historian's duty is to take this history, sort it out, and distill those truths that persist over time into a usable past. This usable past must be selective a careful weeding of events that conveys enough of the details, the flavor of the times, and the reasons behind human actions. In the last analysis, those choices will be made by people who actually walk on history's stage, not historians. History is not a roadmap that governs choices. It is a catalog of possibilities, past, present, and future. When the air transport industry peaked in 1979, nearly 40,000 men, and a few women, earned their livelihoods as pilots for U.S. airlines. 2,200 worked for Braniff. It was a year after the first rush of deregulation. By April 1982, a month before Braniff's bankruptcy swelled the total, 4,525 airline pilots were already on indefinite furlough. When the sharp economic recession of 1982 to 1983 reached bottom, the overall jobless rate for airline pilots approached 20%. By Department of Labor reckoning, airline pilots suffered from unemployment at nearly double the national average. Surprisingly, nobody felt much sympathy for either airline pilots or their union, ALPA. If the overall unemployment rate for ordinary workers had been that high, Congress would have taken action, the president would have reacted. But owing to the prevailing opinion that airline pilots were overpaid and underworked, this decimation of jobs evoked only yawns. Many people believed that airline pilots, whose reputation for haughtiness and self-assurance approached the legendary, were deserving of the comeuppance that the Airline Deregulation Act of 1978 had brought upon them. For 40 years, Professional airline pilots lived charmed lives at the heart of an industry that was perhaps America's finest technological achievement. Airline pilots became, in their lifestyles, income levels, and technical expertise, the subject of almost universal admiration or envy. They were the critical few who dominated the apex of the airline industry. From this position, through a combination of toughness, canniness, and hard-nosed unionism, airline pilots created for themselves all the trappings of professionalism. 
but if the truth be known, more than a little good luck also aided these pilots. Historically, most airline pilots were either unaware of this good luck or unwilling to acknowledge it, although they became perhaps the best examples of how skill, personal discipline, and an unsentimental adherence to unionism can result in high professional status, far too many airline pilots took their situation for granted. They believe the way things currently were is the way things would always be. As the era of direct government regulation of the industry neared its sunset, the salary and benefit packages of U.S. airline pilots were among the highest in the world. The captain of a jumbo jet flying prime North Atlantic runs approached $150,000 in annual earnings. Even a run-of-the-mill Boeing 727 captain flying domestic routes might take home $100,000. Airline pilots clearly owed their privileged position to government regulation and unionization. No purely economic justification existed for the high airline pilot salaries. Airline operators have always been able to find plenty of pilots willing to work for less than union rates. But so long as the Civil Aeronautics Board regulated the industry and friendly politicians presided over the labor laws, unionized airline pilots lived in the best of all possible worlds. In this environment, strikes tended, with some major exceptions, to be short, almost symbolic. Airline managers preferred to pass high pilot salaries along to the traveling public rather than engage in protracted fights. When strikes and other unpleasantries occurred during the four golden decades, ALPA won far more often than it lost. Of course, ALPA had to occasionally demonstrate its toughness and political clout against a few hard cases, notably Southern Airways in 1960-1962. On the whole, labor relations between pilots and management became comfortable, or so it seemed. By the late 1960s, most airline pilots flying the line believed they had seen the last of predatory managers. ALPA won repeated victories at the bargaining table, and the union had beaten back challenges to its status as the preeminent voice of professional airline pilots. A certain mythology emerged, which found far too many pilots willing to believe that those who had created ALPA had won all the wars. They believed that only tranquility stretched ahead for their descendants in modern jet aircraft. Far too many airline pilots contented themselves with running businesses on the side, polishing their golf games, or simply relishing the good lives they lived. By the beginning of the 1970s, the fateful decade of deregulation, most working airline pilots had forgotten one of the most fundamental truths of history. No victory ever stays won. When pilots looked at history, they saw only the victories. They did not see how close some of those calls had been, even under benign government regulation. The kinds of pilots who involved themselves in ALPA's affairs generally did not share the complacency that riddled the rank and file. But because these pilots were political, they had to keep a low profile or lose their ability to represent ALPA. When airline deregulation first began to make headway in Congress, most line pilots paid little attention. ALPA's leaders opposed it, as did most of the major airlines. ALPA's presidents and national officers, 
who always tended to be more politically aware than the rank and file, saw clearly that deregulation posed dangers for their union. But by the early 1970s, the typical airline pilot had become conservative. They seemed oblivious to the benefits derived from unionization and government regulation. ALPA's officers took considerable flack from the rank-and-file pilots for opposing free enterprise. If airline pilots had bothered to read Milton Friedman's Free to Choose, it could have tempered their enthusiasm for deregulation. Friedman was the Nobel laureate from the University of Chicago and the leader of conservative free-market economists. He exercised enormous influence over Republican policymakers during the Nixon and Ford administrations. In Free to Choose, Friedman chose the high salaries paid to airline pilots as his prime example of the evils of government regulation. He argued that curbing airline pilots' salaries would lead to better service and lower fares. With full backing from the Ford administration, legislation emerged that would end federal economic regulation of the airlines. Jimmy Carter adopted Gerald Ford's airline deregulation policies as his own, and surprisingly, Liberals like Ted Kennedy joined forces with conservative free marketeers to make airline deregulation a reality by 1978. Although impossible to prove, it seems likely that pro-labor liberals were put off by airline labor's gold-plated image. After all, when you think about unions and airline pilots during that era, Charlie Ruby pops to mind. During the 1960s, Ruby made his distaste for associating with other labor unions clear. He all but boycotted the AFL-CIO. His attitudes would leave wreckage for J.J. O'Donnell to repair when he became ALPA's president in 1970. But remember, Ruby reflected the dominant attitudes of the rank and file. Many ALPA members were supporters of politicians who were overtly hostile to other labor unions. By the early 1980s, as deregulation began to hit home, the absurdity of trade unionists mouthing free market ideology was obvious. What was not so apparent to an airline pilot, living in a snug Republican suburb during the 70s, was painfully clear by the early 80s. In fairness to ALPA's leadership during the 70s, we must remember that they did not pull their punches in denouncing airline deregulation. The problem was that the rank-and-file ALPA member simply wasn't listening. J.J. O'Donnell never stopped railing against deregulation, despite considerable flack from members. Until tragedy hits home, few individuals are ever willing to believe it can happen to them. Pilots going into combat must believe that the surface-to-air missile launched skyward has somebody else's name on it. The Titanic syndrome affects everybody, not just airline pilots. Hey, my end of the boat's not in the water. It's those guys at the other end who have a problem. This attitude sorely tested the notion of unity across company lines. This fixture of the pilot's mentality since the 1920s began to erode in the late 50s with the passing of the pioneer airmen who founded ALPA. As elite technocrats, airline pilots during the late 60s felt less kinship with these notions. Then, in the late 70s and early 80s, as the twin blows of deregulation and economic recession slammed into the profession, 
the ancient notion of pilot unity faced its most serious challenge. The crisis at Braniff brought it about. Among the Braniff pilots, as among no other group, the ideal of a community of interests among professional airline pilots would face its moment of truth. Their colleagues at Eastern Airlines would test their adherence to this concept by plunging them into stark conflict. The specific cause was Eastern's purchase of Braniff's Latin American roots. When Braniff sold off its South American roots to Eastern shortly before bankruptcy, the faltering airline's pilots, counting on Alpa's help, assumed that Alpa's merger policy would provide them a safe haven. When Braniff actually declared bankruptcy in May 1982, bilateral agreements required Eastern to serve the former Braniff root structure in South America. Eastern hired nearly 1,000 former Braniff personnel, but no pilots. Didn't some ALPA policy dictate that Eastern should take at least a token number of pilots with the airplanes? After all, weren't they fellow Union pilots? Didn't their Eastern counterparts owe them something? Naturally, Eastern's management opposed the expense of indoctrinating new pilots into their corporate culture, and the Braniff pilots didn't expect much help from that direction. But Eastern failed to offer any jobs to Braniff pilots. When Eastern's pilots turned their backs and sustained their management's position, the Braniff pilots' sense of betrayal knew no bounds. They raged. Wasn't J.J. O'Donnell Alpa's president and Eastern pilot? Didn't this mean an Alpa-Eastern conspiracy existed? Didn't this mean that Alpa was favoring another pilot group at their expense? This was all Alpa's fault. Otherwise, why didn't O'Donnell do something? Although rank-and-file Braniff pilots might have been unaware of the strained relations between O'Donnell and his former Eastern mates, Braniff's MEC understood the problem. Throughout the 1970s, some of O'Donnell's most vocal critics within Alpa had been his own former colleagues on Eastern. When Hank Duffy defeated O'Donnell in 1982, the Eastern Councils provided an important part of Duffy's winning margin. O'Donnell maintained that the Braniff MEC understood that his personal intervention with the Eastern MEC would have been counterproductive, and he spoke favorably of Braniff's pilot leaders. The first problem was that Eastern's management did not want the Braniff pilots as a cohesive group and coerced its pilots to support this policy. Good evidence exists that Frank Borman, Eastern CEO, told MEC Chairman Augie Gorse that he would not proceed with the Latin American acquisition if the Eastern MEC did not agree to exclude the brand of pilots. Given the sad fate of Eastern today, it is easy to see that the second of Duffy's conditions applied as well. The Eastern pilots had not done well recently, lagging behind their contemporaries on other airlines in almost every category. While these factors do not excuse the behavior of Eastern's MEC, they do make it understandable. Eastern's purchase of Braniff's Latin American roots was, arguably, outside the technical scope of ALPA merger policy, but the issue clearly had a moral dimension. O'Donnell argued vehemently with Eastern's MEC 
that APA's merger policy applied to their airline's acquisition of Braniff routes in Latin America. The Eastern MEC's reading of the policy, affected by blatant self-interest, differed. So, further complicating O'Donnell's problem, at a time when he might have been able to influence these solid citizens on the Eastern MEC, the MEC leadership kept him completely out of the loop because the MEC leadership and Eastern's management colluded to keep him uninformed, O'Donnell insisted that he was almost helpless to affect events. By the time O'Donnell became aware of just what Eastern's MEC had done, his only alternative would have been to refuse to sign the necessary contract amendments that the new Eastern routes would require. If he had done so, at a time when so many pilots were out of work, the Eastern pilots probably would have bolted from ALPA, just like the American pilots had done in 1963. O'Donnell could have asserted the raw power of his office to remove Eastern's MEC or to implement a trusteeship, something that no ALPA president had ever dared to do before to a major carrier. He had placed the Frontier MEC and trusteeship over the crew complement issue in the 1970s, but it was a small pilot group. Hank Duffy would impose trusteeship on a small airline pilot group, Air Wisconsin, after the airline merged with Mississippi Valley in 1985. But to impose trusteeship on one of ALPA's elephants, O'Donnell believed, would have been catastrophic. For a while, many former Braniff pilots looked with hope toward the Labor Protective Provisions, or LPPs, of the Airline Deregulation Act. Democrat politicians, with their traditional pro-labor bias, had supported deregulation only on condition that workers of any airline bankrupted by it would have first call on available job openings on surviving carriers. Braniff pilots needed these provisions desperately, and therein lies a supreme irony. In one of his first actions as U.S. president, Ronald Reagan fulfilled his campaign promise to get the government off the backs of the American people by canceling the LPPs that the outgoing Carter administration had implemented. Although Congress had written in the LPPs for a situation exactly like Braniff's, and President Carter had signed the LPP regulations, Reagan used the administrative power of his office to rescind them, calling them unnecessary and an unwarranted government interference in private industry, Reagan left Braniff's pilots unprotected just when they needed one final dash of government regulation most. Deregulation of the airline industry, while it lies at the vital center of every airline pilot's career concerns, is by no means the only problem complicating the lives of the people who fly the line professionally. The traditional problems, pay, working conditions, safety, haven't gone away. ALPA still must deal with these meat and potatoes issues. But deregulation made the job that much harder, and J.J. O'Donnell would find his leadership tested repeatedly by events that his predecessors never experienced. The O'Donnell years would see no shortage of tribulation and trial. Next time on Flying the Line, we'll look at the legacy of ALPA President J.J. O'Donnell, 
the effects of the skyjacking phenomenon, and an impending suspension of service. Thank you for listening. This has been Chapter 2 of Flying the Line 2 by George E. Hopkins, copyright 2000. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. To listen and subscribe to more in this series, please check us out online at alpa.org or on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or other podcast platforms. Until next time, this is the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association International. Production copyright Alpha 2022. All rights reserved.